Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate, therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good. And establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there, sh there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Civil War. Civil War. Right? So uh, Amos is a shepherd. He lives in Judah. He's sent up to Israel to prosecute Israel, essentially, to lay out the case that Israel has not been faithful to God's commands and uh, to draw their attention to their sin. Now, recognize that hundreds of years have gone by and Israel has continued to pursue what Israel wants to do. We've noted that this is a time in which Israel enjoys particular prosperity. They've grown as a nation. Lots of revenue is coming in because they're being militarily dominant. And as a result, they've invested in the pleasures that money brings rather than pursuing God. And to this point in the book of Amos, through chapter 4, we have seen that God essentially declares destruction. I've given you your chance. Uh, that chance has passed. I'm going to destroy Israel for their sin. But in chapter 5, a new voice emerges. 
a voice of hope. It's a voice of a gracious God who is willing to give opportunity to the people to repent. It's the voice of the God who instructs the people, seek me and live. Seek me and live. That's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. This notion of of seeking the Lord and living, articulated in different ways, but it's mentioned in verse 4, 6, 14, and 15. And as we focus on this invitation, seek me and live, we're going to consider those three basic components of the invitation. Number one is to seek. Number two is who we are seeking, which is me or the Lord. And uh, number three is the promise of that seeking, which is life. So we'll take them each in turn. What does it mean when God instructs the people to seek? The people and we are invited to actively pursue God, to earnestly decide to find Him, to seek Him out. Now, personally, I don't like to look for things. It's in fact a great annoyance to me when something in the house goes missing. And typically, I don't care. I assume that it will turn up eventually. Someone in the house will find it. I'm not going to be distracted or take time away from what I want to be doing to find that particular thing. However, if something of great value goes missing, then my attitude changes a little bit. A couple of years ago, I lost uh, one of the key fobs to our van. Now, if you haven't had to replace a key fob, it costs two or three hundred dollars to get a key fob. So suddenly I was very interested in finding the key fob to the van and spent time and energy going through the house and turning over cushions and looking in every corner where it might have been deposited. In fact, the entire family invested in looking for the key fob. If you're interested, we did not find it. And I hung my head low as I walked into the dealership to replace the key fob. But the point is, my effort or endeavor or desire to find something, to search after something, changed dramatically based upon the value that I ascribe to that thing. Right? If I lose a sock, I don't care. I couldn't be bothered. If I lose a key fob worth a couple hundred dollars, suddenly I'm very interested in seeking after that thing. So we realize that the energy that we place into seeking for something reveals how much we really value something. Or love something. So the question then becomes, what does your seeking after God reveal to you about the degree of value that you place upon God? Does your seeking communicate that yes, God is very valuable and you are very intent on finding Him? Or is there a lack of seeking in your weeks which would communicate that you don't really necessarily value uh, Him? Now, sometimes when we talk about seeking uh, God, well, before I get into that, let me point out to you how this is apparent in our passage. We know that Israel is not seeking after God, that they're actually seeking after other things because God has been pointing it out to them since we began Amos. But if you look at verses 11 and 12, you'll notice that the people are building expensive houses, houses hewn with stone. And building impressive vineyards so that they can drink their wine. And they have done so at the expense of the poor. Rather than seeking God's justice, they have set righteousness aside in order to have the material possessions that they want. The people of Israel are seeking after anything but God and setting aside His righteousness 
so that they can be free to pursue what they want to pursue and to achieve what they want to have. Again, we see that our seeking reveals what we love. Now, sometimes when we talk about seeking, we sometimes struggle with the notion, well, why does God make me seek? Wouldn't it be nice if God was just present? If he was very imminent all the time and I wasn't, why does he require me to seek after him? What's this hide-and-seek routine? Some of you will know the name uh, Margaret Wise Brown. Uh, if you don't know her name, you probably know the most famous book that she penned, which is Goodnight Moon, a children's classic, which uh, many of you, if you're younger, you may not remember it, but it was probably read to you ad nauseum when you were one or two or three years old. Brown was a writer of children's literature uh, in the last mid-century and would write a number of, of classics, about 100 books all told. In 1952, uh, she had decided to get married and was looking forward to that marriage and decided that she had better write a will. Uh, getting married, and she said she didn't want New York State, which is the state where she lived, to take a third of all her possessions, so she was going to put this will in place. She did so in the spring of 1952, and in the fall of 1952, she headed across the Atlantic to visit France and was planning to meet up with her fiancé uh, later on uh, in that year. But as she crossed the Atlantic, she became very ill. Uh, when she arrived in France, she had emergency surgery in Nice and would die two weeks later from an embolism. What is curious about the story is... Uh, now that Margaret Wise Brown is dead, the will is read. And Mar Margaret Wise Brown leaves uh, almost all of her royalties of her some 100 books to uh, the nine-year-old boy who lived next door. It was the child of a friend she had in college, and she continued to live next to the friend after she got married and began to have children. She didn't have any children of her own. And so she just decided, for whatever reason, it's a little bit mysterious, that she would leave all of this to Albert, uh, the nine-year-old son of uh, her friend and neighbor. And so by the year 2000, Albert would collect more than $5 million in royalties. He did pretty well, as Goodnight Moon continues uh, to be in very active print. So, you know, what do you do? You're nine years old, and you know that your life is set. You're good to go. Well, some of you can probably guess, Albert became a uh, remarkably overachieving deadbeat. He never achieved anything. He spent his life on the fringes of society. He never settled down in one place. He spent money as quickly as he received it, usually very foolishly. He never held down a job and uh, has dozens of arrests. Sometimes when something is just given to us, we have the propensity to take it for granted and for not to, not to appreciate it and as a result not to really live in the blessing that it is. And if God was to just give himself to us, perhaps that would be the worst thing for us. Perhaps just having it, we would take it for granted and never actually learn what it is to be shaped by the process of seeking. There is something that happens in the seeking in which our old selves are put to death and we become new. And it's the invitation that God offers to us in His grace to repent, seek me, come after me. Right? And how, what privilege do we have standing where we are compared to the people in Amos' day? Right? 
they receive the invitation, which is gracious to seek after God, but we receive the invitation after we've been sought to the extent that God would go to the grave to seek us out. Would you not want to seek after the one who has sought you out to that extent? The first notion here is that we are to seek. And seeking is something that is intentional. It's energetic. It cannot be passive, right? If I were to ask you right now, how are you seeking after God? If you delay in answering that question in your own mind, you've got a problem. Because you haven't decided, you aren't intentional about it, you can't seek something passively, which means it's not happening. To find God, we must seek Him. To be drawn into that relationship, we must pursue Him. It's not, of course, and this leads us very obviously into our second notion, which is that we don't just seek. Israel is seeking, but they're seeking after false things. Vineyards and houses hewn with stone. The seeking must be after me or the Lord. The object of our seeking must be God himself. Consider verse 5 with me. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. What is God saying? God invites Israel to seek him at the end of verse 4 and immediately in verse 5 he says, but don't bother seeking me in any of your most holy sites. Right? These three cities that are mentioned are the high holy places of Israel in the north. He says, don't bother going to those places. That's not where I'm going to be. And in fact, I'm bringing those places under judgment. Now, in the weeks leading up to this, we've seen, and just as a quick reminder, how did those places come into existence? When Israel, after the Civil War, Israel's in the north, and Jeroboam I, almost 200 years prior to this, says, I'm worried about the people in the north going back to the temple in Jerusalem. We need our own temples up here so that they don't go back south. And so he establishes these holy sites right, outside of God's will or instruction as the new worship sites. Now we've covered that, and I don't want to be overly repetitive. The question I want to raise this morning is why these places? Why were these cities chosen as the holy sites of Israel? We're talking about three cities that stand out prominently in the story of Israel up to this point. Uh, just as a, to give you a notion of how important they were, the city of Bethel was very special in the story of Jacob. Two times God appears to Jacob in Bethel and reveals himself to him. Right? Jacob is invited into relationship with God at Bethel. Beersheba is one of the holiest places because in Beersheba, God appears to every patriarch. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all receive a visit from God in uh, the city of Beersheba, or the place where Beersheba exists. And in each visit, God reminds them that he's going to be with them, and they have no reason to fear. Right? The very relationship that gives birth to Israel as a nation is, is formulated as God reaches down and embraces relationship with the first three patriarchs. And Gilgal is a special city because if you fast forward a bit, as Israel comes out of Egypt, they cross over the Jordan. And when they cross over the Jordan, that marks the point at which they're entering the promised land. The first camp they have on the other side of the Jordan is Gilgal. 
and to celebrate their entrance after 40 years of waiting into the promised land, they build a great stone uh, monument, right, to commemorate the 12 tribes of Israel and God's faithfulness. And they have a covenantal renewal ceremony. Right? This is who we are. We're the people of Yahweh. And he, he sought us out and we are now his and respond to him. Right? They remind themselves of these covenantal promises. So all three cities, all three places have this unique and very important place in the history of Israel. But what Israel is doing is saying, God has shown up here in the past. God's done something special here in the past. Let's commemorate it and presume that he will continue to do something special just in this place. There's an interesting tendency within the church to rely upon stories of the past to inform our own righteousness or sense of well-being. It's almost as if we ride on the coattails of what God has done in the past and presume that there's some kind of remnant. I've known people who have carried their father's Bible as if it was a talisman because their father was a preacher. And even though their life was a mess, they seem to think that it delivered some kind of sanctity to their life. I've known missionary kids who, while accomplishing little themselves, will tell you over and over and over again the accomplishments of their parents and their forebears. As if they're, they have an inheritance from their parents and can live that inheritance out. And perhaps even more pointedly for us, it's, not, it's more often than I would like to admit that I see or someone uh, celebrate the history of the Reformation. To say, we, our theology is so grand and so superior to so many others. While at the same time, they neither love their wives nor care for the poor. We should be careful to think that we have a righteousness simply because something happened in Bethel or Beersheba or Gilgal or in uh, Germany. Righteousness is cultivated between a present relationship between God and the individual, and God and the community. And so we see that our seeking must not simply be a seeking, a pursuit of what we would deem to be worthy, is it a seeking of one thing, first and foremost, and that is God himself. One of my invitations to you today is to think seriously about how do you order your life, and what priorities do you make to actually seek after God? If someone were to look in, would they say, oh, Yes, this person is actually really searching for God himself. Or would they think that actually you're searching for something else? The third portion of our invitation is the promise. Right? We can say, well, seeking and seeking God is a lot of work. And I would say, yes, you're right. I would say, if you don't say that, you haven't tried it. But the promise is that to seek God results in life. Not only that, but I would hold out to you without a reservation that seeking God is the only thing that offers life. Seeking anything else offers an absence of life. And we can see this as well in our passage. In verse 2, God declares, Fallen no more to rise as the virgin Israel. It's a very sad phrase. What's being communicated there is that Israel is at the place where she should be expectant of entering the rest of her life, of enjoying marriage and adulthood 
and bearing children. And instead, at that very point where she should be looking forward to everything that is to come, she falls dead for her lack of righteousness and ongoing, centuries-long rebellion against God. And there's a picture, a notion of this absence of life, how it actually eats away the person in verse 10. Verse 10 says, They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Now, God is speaking to Israel, and we know that Israel still believes that they're worshiping God. But God says, no, the reality is that you you hate him who reproves in the gate, the voice of the prophet, and you abhor him who speaks the truth, which is both the prophet and, of course, God himself is the one who speaks truth. They actually hate Israel. God, because God is the one who speaks truth. Now, why would you hate someone who brings truth? Have you ever ever tasted the hatred of someone when you've tried to bring truth? When you speak truth into a situation, there are two realities. The first reality is that you identify the sin or the disobedience that is being engaged. But the other thing that you do is you pull apart the lies, the web of deceit, that endorses that very sin. The, very, um, the notions, the lies, the, the stories that we tell ourselves to make it seem like we're doing something that we're not. Imagine a father and a son. In the, just at home, in the living room, and the son is doing homework, and the father is sitting nearby, and the, the son speaks of how much work he has to do and how hard he is working in the midst of their homework. The son, or this father is watching while the son is attempting to do their homework. He notices that the son is often distracted. The phone is checked. A snack is needed. There's some wandering around. Better check the clothes. Better see what, what movie's available for rent later on once the work is done. And so the father points out to the son and says, you know, maybe you're not really working as hard as you think you are. There are a number of points at which you've been distracted, and the father points those out to the son, and the son hears the father and must now decide how to respond. Now, the son could say, thanks, Dad, Uh, you're you're right, as you usually are, and I appreciate you pointing this out to me. I'm going to repent of not doing, uh, working as hard as I could on my homework. And you know what? Do you have any other advice for me on how to remain focused on my work? Because you speak wisdom from years of life, experience that I don't have. Now, I haven't heard that personally. Maybe you have at some point, but I think that's a bit theoretical. More likely what happens is there's a flash of anger, right? Even some hatred, Because truth has been spoken on two levels, right? First is the level of, okay, what's being exposed is you're not working as hard as you think you are, right? But not only that, the story that the son has told himself is, no, I'm working really hard. You You can't believe how much work I have to do and how hard I'm working, but the father has pointed out the ways in which that isn't necessarily true and must be reevaluated in the reality of four distractions in the last 30 minutes. And so there's not only the notion that, that what the very basic claim is not true, but 
you're, you're unweaving, you're pulling apart the cobwebs of story that the son tells himself, right? That makes, that paints himself in a better picture than he actually is. Now, we all do this, right? Unquestionably. We constantly weave webs together that excuse our sin and make ourselves to look more righteous than we are. It's how we make ourselves feel better. But in the picture of the sun, right, at that moment when the, of exposure and vulnerability, what you are most likely to see is a flash of hatred, abhorrence because truth has been spoken, and abhorrence for the speaker of truth because they don't want to hear it. Darkness doesn't like light. Well, perhaps you've been, well, I'm quite sure you've been on both sides of this. You have both spoken truth to someone and have been aboard for it. You've known the hatred of someone who doesn't want to hear what you have to say. But you've probably also received truth. And you haven't wanted to hear what that person has to say. You don't like the way that they are uh, undressing you in a certain way, you feel rather exposed. And so you have hatred for that person. And as God calls Israel out, saying, no, you don't worship me, you actually hate me. Because I speak truth and you won't listen to the truth that I offer to you through my prophet. As we hear that voice, right, perhaps we should ask ourselves, particularly when you are a place of getting angry, when someone is speaking something to you, why are you angry? Is there some truth that you need to hear? And I mean this uh, in this sense, in terms of anger, anger is a great signifier of many things. And if someone was telling you something that simply wasn't true, you probably wouldn't be angry. You know, if somebody came up to me and said, Ryan, you are so lazy, you sleep in all the time. I kind of chuckle. Um, I mean, you could claim I'm lazy. That We can debate that. But I don't, I don't tend to sleep in. I just wake up and I hate to lay in bed awake. And I can nap like a bear, but I don't, can't sleep in. So I'd say, well, you don't know me very well. That's not true. But I'm not angry because I know that your claim is preposterous. But when we do get angry when someone speaks something to us, perhaps it's because it's making us feel a little bit undressed. And that abhorrence of someone who may be speaking truth, well, maybe we need to consider why the truth is convicting and why it pierces close to our heart to hear what's being said. So we have this invitation. Seek. You must invest. You must be energetic. You must be earnest in actually pursuing God. Seek me. The object of your pursuit more than any other pursuit in your entire world should be God Himself, which will order all other pursuits. And that is what is meant by life. To seek Him, the result of that is joy and abundant life. Jesus' invitation is not that far off when He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, seek after Me, I will be found. I have already sought you out. Jesus elaborates on this invitation a little bit in our passage when he teaches in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has 
and buys that field? Does your seeking reflect the earnestness of the man who goes and sells all that he has and buys that field? Is your seeking after God or is it after something else? And do you know the life, the abundant life, the joy that in whatever circumstances comes as a result of seeking after God in that fashion? Well, if you do not, then if we work backwards, perhaps you are seeking after the wrong thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning because you have sought us when we did not deserve to be found. We thank you for your mercy and your compassion toward us. And we pray this morning that your spirit would be upon us in such a way that you would make us earnest seekers after you. Jesus, we confess this morning that so often we we think we've found a treasure in a field and we sell too much to acquire that treasure only to find out that we've missed the treasure, the real treasure entirely. Would you help us to be so enamored by the reality of what you offer and who you are that we would indeed not hesitate to give up all, to surrender all, to, to, to place everything in order behind uh, the, the, the sole and most significant purpose of seeking you. We ask that you would nourish us toward this goal at this table this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.